Hello everyone, my name is Mabe Koja. I'm the Chief Actuary at BCS Financial, and I'm also the President of Medical Risk Managers. And I've been working in the stop loss industry for roughly the past 10 years. I'm excited today to launch a new podcast series called Firm and Final, where I bring you the legendary stories by the legends in the stop loss, reinsurance, and self-funded industry. This is a chance for the next generation to learn from the heroes in our industry. This is gonna be a lot of fun, and thank you for joining me on this journey. I look forward to introducing you to these heroes of our industry and sharing their stories with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest is Mike McLean, and I'm really excited to have him as the first guest on this podcast series. He is truly a first ballot Hall of Famer. Now, I first met Mike in 2012 or 2013 when a salesperson invited me to a lunch with Mike. And little did I know at the time that Mike was one of the Michael Jordans of this industry. And it was shortly after that that I Googled him and I learned more about him. And wow, what a fantastic background he has. It was a couple of years later in 2017 when we crossed paths again at a Society of Actuaries Health Conference where he asked me if I would consider a role at Medical Risk Managers. And when Michael Jordan asks you to practice free throws with him, you don't say no. I'm really excited to bring you this discussion with Mike McLean. So getting ready to meet my friend and soon to be yours, Mike McLean. Mike, welcome to Firm and Final. Oh, thank you. This is a podcast about legends in the stop loss in the self-funded oh, industry. And uh, happy to have Mike McLean as our inaugural guest on Firm and Final. Um, Mike, I would really like to get the audience to get to know you a little bit. So I thought we would start off with uh, a lightning round of questions just to get uh, the audience getting to know you better. So first question is, um, what are three words that describe a career in stop loss or self-funding? Um, first of all, I'd say interesting. And I know this is insurance and health insurance. And you'd think it's uh, not the most interesting, but it's really got a lot of nuances and I found it very interesting. Yeah. Another word describing the industry would be growth. We've had tremendous growth over the last four decades since I've been in it. Um, and we've had, as an industry, we've had a lot of wind at our back. It's not just in trend, it's medical trend. Mm. It's not just medical trend, it's hospital inpatient bill charge trend. And it's not just that, it's leverage trend, mm -hmm. you know, the deductible leveraging effect. In addition, we've had a huge and continued uh, migration from fully insured to self-funding. And so the market, you know, number of lives covered is bigger. And part of that is also we've had a uh, almost humorous decrease in the minimum size. It used to be, you know, I shouldn't do self-funding under a thousand lives. It's yeah. too volatile. Now you probably shouldn't go under two. So Yeah, there's all the level funded products go down to two lives in a lot of states. Yeah, it's it's crazy the differences. Yeah. Uh, so lots of growth. Even Ernie Clevenger said it was 16.9% over the last five years, mm -hmm. compound annual growth rate. Uh, in addition, a word would be efficiency. And that might sound peculiar, but the reason employers went self-funded in the first place 
is they um, wanted to avoid dollar swapping. Mm -hmm. You you know, I'll pay your claims as an insurance company. I'll add my expenses and then I'll charge you premium. Sometimes there was uh, it was predictable, so it just didn't make sense to do the dollar swap. You know, sure. It wasn't efficient for the employer. Sounds like a very actuarial term, Mike. Uh, probably economic term, <laughs> maybe. It's, uh... Well, good. So you said interesting, growth, and efficient. Yes. Okay. Um, and so today we're, we're joining you in your beautiful home in Rhode Island. But when I think about SIA conferences and uh, even the Society of Actuary conferences that we go to, they're always in different cities across the country. What's like the most memorable city that you have either went to a SIA conference or an SOA conference? I mean, there have been some nice ones. When you do the international conferences, they don't tend to pick schlock locations, you know, Grand Caymans or London. Um, but I'd say the prettiest city would be, that I would think it was the Society of Actuaries, Vancouver. Okay. I mean, the hotel was right next to Stanley Park, and you're walking through the park, and you literally see bald eagles flying around. Sure. It's a great city. Good, yes. That is a really beautiful city. So what is it about going to SIA conferences that you either love, and what is it about going to SIA conferences that you don't love so much? Let's changed over the years. I used to go to a SIA conference and attend all of the meetings and, you know, just try to hook up, you know, outside of the uh, sessions uh, for meetings. And then it's changed a little over the years so that it's more of a let's get meetings done because the reinsurers are there, the carriers are there, the MGUs are there. You know, it's it's a... It's like the London Coffee House. You know, everybody's <laughs> together in one location. So yeah. What I like about it is the sessions are great, but I don't like the fact that I really can't take the time or couldn't take the time to attend the sessions that I yeah. want to. But I do like the fact that uh, the videotapes are you know, sometimes available. Sure. So one of the things that um, I really enjoy about the self-funded and stopless industry is that as you meet people, so many people have like great stories about the people they work with or about the industry or about old times. Um, and I think you're one of the best storytellers in our industry. But if you had to pick one of your favorite storytellers in this industry, who would it be? That's a tough one uh, because most of the funny stories I couldn't repeat on the <laughs> videotape anyway. Um, and there were some hilarious people out there Looking back, uh, you know, in retrospect, most of them were alcoholics, I think, but uh, they, they were funny to listen to. Uh, and I uh, had a few drinks myself. But, uh, you know, Pat Campo is a pretty funny guy. And uh, Ray Moulton was you know, funny in that, you know, he would just walk up to you and say, twice your salary and 20% of the company. And when you're a young guy with kids at home and all that, and someone offers you twice your salary, yeah, and he's not joking because he just had taken the predecessor at my company, and um, so he's pretty funny. Uh, I, I'm hard pressed to find to pick one of the uh, funny ones. I guess I'd say. All right, so maybe let me ask the question another another way. Um, if there's somebody else in the stop loss and self funded industry that you could be for one day, who would it be? Um, well, it would probably be somebody that I could drain their bank account, um, 
because a lot of people have made a lot of money in uh, stop loss. Uh, either that or a really good looking girl, but I guess I shouldn't <laughs> answer that either. But uh, I'm I trying to think of one person I'd want to be, um, have to be, I mean, Ernie Clevenger's a pretty smart guy. I'd like to, uh, he's, uh, maybe I'll pick Ernie. So okay. Just because he's uh, pretty knowledgeable in a lot of different things. Yes, he is. And I'd yes. want to uh, suck his brain dry, and for that matter, and his bank account. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very good. Well, I want to get, have the audience get to know you a little bit better and kind of go back in time a little bit and think about how you got started in the stop-loss and self-funded industry. How long ago was that, and how did you get started? Um, I guess my first exposure to stop loss would have been 1979, or 43 years ago. Mm -hmm. I was doing some uh, work at the Travelers. I was an actuarial student, and I was uh, working on risk charge margin trade-offs and doing some cool things that students would do back then, Monte Carlos and all of that. Uh, and uh, back then, and then I went to the Hartford in 81, and we started from scratch and built up a nice little stop-loss block. We were one of the earlier ones mm -hmm. jumping in. Okay. So, so what, basically what, forever. So. Okay. So what drew you into this industry? I mean, as an actuarial student at an insurance company, there's so many different paths you could have taken. What, what was the path to get into self-funding and stop-loss? Well, the... I'll start even back before that, my actuarial career. I came out of college and they interviewed me on the property casualty side and the life health side, also group insurance. Um, and they made me offers on both sides, mm -hmm. but I didn't even know what an actuary was. And I was <laughs> not very literate about it, you know, the field. And I didn't know whether I should go FCAS or FSA. And as I'm leaving Hartford to go from what at the time was Sinesta Hotel on a shuttle bus to the airport, I sit down next to a guy, start talking to him, and I said, what should I do? Should I go property casualty or, or life health? And he said, oh, don't go property casualty. It's, it's way too volatile. And so some guy who I had no idea who he was, who yeah. I happened to sit down next to, made me choose to go life and health instead of uh, property casualty. I call that like the sliding doors of life. You exactly. a right turn or a left turn, and you took the one of those turns, and here's where you ended up. Sometimes the doors open, sometimes they close. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, right. So then, uh, no, I just found, again, I found the, you know, the geekish part of uh, stop loss early on interesting, so yeah. you could... Uh, do a lot of analysis. Um, and then you just kind of uh, migrated there and, you know, you tend to do what you like and like what you do. So Sure. So our connection is medical risk managers located in South Windsor, Hartford, outside of the Hartford area in Connecticut. How did you end up at MRM? Um, Don Van Dyke, who owned DW Van Dyke and Company, um, in fact, he gave somebody else grief over naming a company after their initials. I'm like, Don, you named the company after yourself. Sure. But because MRM, my initials are MRM, but uh, 
medical risk managers existed before I got there. Just a funny um, coincidence. It, it was destiny. He had to go <laughs> for it. Um, you know, he called me up and uh, wanted to know if I run a, to run a small company. And I said, well, where is it? And he said, Madison Avenue. I'm like, no way. I don't want to go to Madison Avenue. I had kids and a family and a house with a yard and all that. Um, then he said, well, where do you want the company to be? And I said, well, I live in South Windsor, Connecticut. So we literally put the company there. And then I realized how small the company was. It had one employee. Mm -hmm. And so we uh, built it up and uh, we would have been larger, but we sold off blocks along the way. We sold off a block to a uh, um, $35 million block to what's now Swiss Re. Uh, we sold off a $100 million block to Safeco. They stripped it out of... Uh, uh, MRM, and then later on took another 90 million out of MRM. So we're about, we built it up to about 300 million in premium plus what we'd spun off by uh, 2012, 2013 when I uh, uh, turned over the reins to uh, Tom Doran. Okay. So if you think about your career in like the form of sports highlights, right? What would you say are like the top three accomplishments that you achieve in the stop loss and self-funded world? I'd have to say that, gee, the top one would be uh, winning the Hartford Current Fox News uh, best company to work for, uh, best small company to work for, 50 to 150 lives in uh, Connecticut. Okay. And also top leader in Connecticut. So we had, bottom line is it's based on employee survey. So we had really happy employees uh, for many years running, still do. Uh, although it's a little weird nowadays with, uh, it's kind of hard to have the same camaraderie if nobody's showing up in the office sure. because of COVID. But I'd have to say, yeah, those two things were the top. Um, Every time you sell the company, it puts a little more money in the bank account and takes a year off your life. Sure. Um, so buying and selling a few times, growing the block, uh, giving full day Society of Actuaries uh, seminars was a lot of fun mm -hmm. uh, going around the country and uh, I enjoyed that. Very cool. So when you think about like the industry today, it must be very different than when it was 15 to 20 years ago. As you kind of look at the stop loss industry today, outside of the growth, what has like changed about the industry? Yeah, I mean, it's it, as much as you think it's changed in the last 15 to 20 years, it's nothing compared to the last 40 years. Like 40 years ago, when we got in, most stop loss carriers we're pricing stop loss as a percentage of total claims. Mm. Well, you got $10 million in claims, uh, 200,000 deductible, whatever, uh, X percent done. So year-end quoting was really easy because you just had to go this times that. Sure. Not a lot of uh, backlog and getting your spec rates turned around. Um, but you know, e even back in uh, early 90s, some big, some bukas, which is, you know, our clients early on were Blues United Signet, Aetna, so I should have trademarked the term back then, yeah. but we've been uh, using that for 30, 40 years. 
Um, you know, even some of the book is Aetna and United, Aetna and Travelers, which turned into Metro Health, which turned into United, um, were pricing stop loss as a percentage of premium. And as an actuary, it's easy to go to another actuary and go, you know, the demographics of a case impact shock claims in a different manner than overall claims. For instance, females have a higher um, morbidity than males, um, although men have higher mortality. Sure. So women have what I would call maintenance claims. I'm not being uh, sexist or anything, but they have more of the smaller claims, and men have the larger claims, which tend to kill you. Yes. So if claims are going up because of a higher female content, well, your total claims are going up, but not your stop loss claims. Right. So it was, you need a different set of age sex factors. So that changed, and the early people doing that uh, caught on and were able to select against the other carriers. Okay. Um, another thing that's interesting is a lot of the early, and, and still some, a lot of the blues carriers and some of the larger carriers would throw all of their expenses on the ASO, because their ASO carriers would throw all of it onto the ASO admin fees. Mm. And they would price the stop loss at 100% permissible loss ratio. They wouldn't even load for premium taxes. Like claims are this, yeah, that's my premium. And then you talk to them and say, well, do you have any problems competitively with your stop loss rates? No, no, our stop loss rates are great. Well, of course they're great. You're, you know, yeah, you got a hundred percent freight of the premium, and other people have a sixty-five percent, so they have a fifty percent load that you don't have. Right. And then you'd say, "Hey, uh, your admin fees competitive?" Oh no, we have a lot of problem with our admin fees. <laughs> so they didn't necessarily draw the connection. Yeah. That they really did have, and they were still getting away with pricing as a percentage of premium. Sure. They were just being uh, quick but inefficient. Got it. Uh, so that changed. Another thing that changed and impacted uh, everything dramatically was the uh, the switch to network differentiation. It used to be that claims were claims. Yes. But if you're a PPO, you're essentially a volume discount. If you've got better volume, you tend to get a better discount. Mm -hmm. So the bukas of the world... Um, you know, started to get bigger discounts than everybody else. And if you're following XYZ PPO on a quote and you're up against United Healthcare and their liabilities down here and you're trying to match their rate, well, you, you better hope you have some naive capacity reinsurance to do mm -hmm. that because you're not going to make money. Got it. Uh, so network differentiation became important. And then as soon as people started differentiating and they realized that, uh, impact. And so we've tended to have a larger, we, we've tended to have an oligopoly forming on the, uh, it used to be all these, you know, myriad PPOs could get away with it. Now it's pretty well known that their liability is simply different than uh, um, the BUCAs. Okay. So I heard you mention some carriers there. And uh, I stayed in downtown Hartford last night looking out my window. I see Aetna, I see United Healthcare, Travelers, um, a bunch of insurance companies. You mentioned you worked at the Hartford. What is it about the Hartford area that has spawned so much stop loss and self-funding talent? Um, well, Indianapolis is another one that, I mean, what happens is you have an early leader in a field 
and then somebody spins off and goes to another company. The Hartford, uh, as far as stop loss, the Hartford was decently early. Mm. Um, I, mean, I joke there was a building, 1699 King Street in Enfield. You never heard of that, right? But <laughs> Guardian was based there for stop loss. Down, I mean, there's four floor building. Yeah, Guardian had a floor for their stop loss. Symmetra was right underneath them with a floor for their stop loss. And you also had U.S. Healthcare in there. And you had a fourth one in there. I mean, it, yes, this is a three was in there. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a building in the literally the middle of nowhere, and yeah. all of a sudden there's lots of carriers. Yeah, all of those had end directly because the IHC Swiss Re had spun off. From MRM, yeah. Uh, Guardian got into stop loss from MRM. The Symmetra block, we rolled a hundred million to MRM. The reason they were in the Hartford area is they had bought MRM. Sure. So oddly enough, MRM had a a little connection to all of that. That yeah. little one employee company that grew. It's very interesting, you know, spending time in Hartford the past couple of years. You just meet so many people in the neighborhood that are have some form or fashion to do with the stop loss industry. A lot of connections, as you mentioned, to MRI. I mean, part of it was a natural, Hartford was a natural location. I mean, like if, if you're out in Seattle, it's actually tough for the, the symmetrics of the world to find group health underwriters. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a lot of other insurance companies out there. If you're in the Hartford area, especially when everything was truly based, you know, United Healthcare didn't move elsewhere and Aetna didn't. Now, every, everybody was still based here and it really was the insurance capital of the world. Um, so if you needed group health underwriters, well, Aetna had a few. Yeah. Travelers, which became, you know, and United had a few. Cigna, the largest stop loss carrier. So three of the top four or five stop loss carriers all conveniently located in the yeah, Hartford area. We're, we're based here. Yeah. So it was, it was a good place to steal talent. And the yeah. other companies, <laughs> you know, they'd have good training programs, whether it was actuaries or underwriters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that training is lacking nowadays. So. Sure. Especially in a work from home environment, it's kind of hard to replicate the training of yesterday when you're sitting next to somebody asking questions, kind of diving into problem solving together. Yeah, when you're sitting next to an old fart who's seen a lot, might yeah. have forgotten most of it, but uh, yeah, you, know, you don't get the water cooler effect where you sure. bump into people. Sure. So that that's actually one of the big risks facing all industries. But if you think about specifically stop loss and, and self-insurance, what do you think is facing the industry in terms of risk? I mean, there's always the sort of Damocles threat of national health insurance. Mm -hmm. And the reason I sold in 2007 MRM one time was uh, I thought either Hillary or Obama was going to get in and um, nationalize health insurance. And I'd have a decent chunk of what little net worth I had tied up in uh, one company and then my profession would be all of a sudden kaput because you wouldn't need stop loss. Sure. I'd have no company, no job prospects. And yeah. But yeah, take a little cash off the table. Sure. Um, so national health insurance would be a big one. A- another one is the states, all, all of them hate self-funding. 
Why do they hate self-funding? It takes away from premium tax that they could be collecting. Huge revenue drain. Right. Uh, so the states will come along and go, no, 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 we need a minimum number of lives. It's not that you really need a minimum number of lives. You can solve the... Because they'll say, no, it's too volatile. Mm-hmm. Not really. Um, you just lower their deductible. Right. And get more stability. Right. I mean, after all, fully insured is just... The same thing as self-funding with a zero-dollar deductible, right. where the employer doesn't have any liability. But many states will enact a minimum deductible requirement. They do, yeah. but it's purely selfish. It's not to protect the employer, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's, hey, let's try to get a few more premium tax dollars. They really don't like ERISA. If you got rid of ERISA, that would be a pretty big threat because then you'd have to have a patchwork quilt of a whole bunch of different rules. Sure. Um, some other things that could go wrong. It's not a threat. It's a threat to some. If, if we keep going to the oligopoly, it becomes a monopoly. Well, the ultimate monopoly is national health. But, you know, you, you look at like United, they have a TPA that has $1.2 billion of stop loss premium just under UMR. Yeah. Uh, then United and you know, the Buka Cigna's got $4 billion. Um, so, so you've got all of these big companies. One of them could figure out, gee, you know, it's nice to give out access to my network, but I've decided I want to, you know, I'm jumping into bed with all these TPAs. I've decided I want to roll over in bed and uh, say, no, nah, I think I'll write the stop loss myself. You can't have sure. access to it. Yeah. So if they do that, that's certainly a threat to the TPA market space because then they're going to have rental network liability here without access to Buka. Sure. I mean, years ago, we were pitching before it was cool, what we call the marriage made in heaven, which is you've got all the TPAs going, oh, I got all these lives. I wish I had access to a good network. You had the giant ASO carriers going, Oh, I've got these great networks. I wish I had access to more lives. You put the two together. Yeah. But eventually, you could have a divorce, and that would be bad for certain segments if they didn't unbundle their services and said, nah, I'm going to bundle my ASO, my network, my UR, and my stop loss together. Sure. And it would just kind of wipe out portions of the industry. Sure. Yeah, that is definitely a risk. Um, You know, thinking about that, there's actually a lot of uh, MGU transactions that have been going on in the past couple of years. Now, you obviously sold MGU. It's been about 15 years since that happened. What's your take on that activity today and the valuation rates that we're seeing in the markets these days? I, I mean, they were up certainly a lot higher than I got, that's for sure. Yeah. But uh not going to cry over spilled milk there. Sure. The, uh, I mean, like a lot of things, it's a field where because of the growth, if you can say, hey, here's what the industry is growing, there aren't many fields that are growing at that pace for so long. So you had private equity money jumping in. I mean, it, it made sense. And with super low interest rates, it made sense to say, well, yeah, there's this potential to make money 20 years from now. Let's put a high valuation on it. Mm-hmm. Well, interest rates go up a little, and all of a sudden, in a lot of industries, valuation, you know, multiples go down. Yeah. So uh, if you were lucky enough to sell in the last couple of years, yeah, it's probably a good move. Um, so I'm guessing the multiples will go down. Uh, it's also a function of 
the underwriting cycle. I mean, it used to be the fully insured underwriting cycle was three years up, three years down. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was like a sine wave. It was very consistent over, you know, it was like sunspot cycles. I mean, you're up, you're down 11 years. Yeah. Um, then everybody switched from fully insured to self-funding. I would argue there's still a cycle. It's just because stop loss, you're looking in a rear view mirror, mm -hmm. stop loss, I got a longer focal length. So stop loss uh, cycles are longer because it takes you longer to react. Fully insured, oh, you get the claim now. Uh, a little extra longer on the stop loss. So our cycles up and down are a little longer. Um, then three years up, three years down. But I, you know, if you follow like a DW Venn Dyke survey of loss ratios, or you know, I even did some loss ratio surveys, a um, bunch of years running. Years ago, you couldn't just look up loss ratios. Yeah. People wouldn't tell me their loss ratios. They'd tell me the change in loss ratios. Oh, okay, so you tracked it. So yeah, even yeah. if you're horrible, you could say, ah, I went down 3%. Yeah, you went from 120 to 117. Yeah. Um, so... You know, you could tell there were, and back in the uh, 20 years ago, there were, I'd do a survey and it would be like, oh, we got worse, we got worse, but this current year is great. You do the survey a year later, oh, I got worse, I got worse, I got worse, but this current year is great. Yeah. And after about three years of that, you're like, figure out really? The pattern. Uh, so yeah. things were getting worse. And then, uh, for instance, 20 years ago, the entire reinsurance market collapsed. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, there was some naive capacity there and uh, all of the reinsurers went, I'm out of here. And we had a bunch of reinsurers. Sometimes we were even the last, you know, the last one they turned the lights out on because we had some really good loss ratios, but they're still getting out of business. So a whole sure. bunch of the market disappeared. And whereas before, more than 20 years ago, a lot of MGUs, a lot of rental paper, a lot of heavily reinsured rental paper and not so much emphasis on the bucas. Well, if you get rid of reinsurance, who's left? Well, the bucas don't really need a lot of reinsurance. Sure. I mean, they can take a big claim hit. They don't, you know, nobody needs ag reinsurance. Um, so they weren't used getting reinsurance. And then you even had the direct carriers, the Symmetras of the world, the Sun Lifes of the world, they're larger. They didn't need a lot of reinsurance. Mm -hmm. So the reinsurers went from running everything to being much less pertinent in the industry. And as a result, if the reinsurance is behind, you know, behind you is disappearing, and your foundation falls down and sure. it's harder for uh, the paper finally says, well, I don't want to take a hundred percent of this risk. And if I can't get reinsurance, I'm out. Yeah. And if the MGU is like, well, I can't get paper, then I'm out. So things changed a lot, and we've definitely had a switch towards the oligopoly. The other thing, and brokers became, you know, it used to be TPAs, were the first ones jumping into uh, stop loss. Oddly enough, the first ones jumping into stop loss many years ago were the property casualty companies. Okay. The Hartford, the you know, Safeco, HCC, all these big PNC companies. Why? They didn't have an enforced block of fully insured to eat. The fully insured carriers didn't want to eat. They didn't want to cannibalize their own market until finally the so employer. It's like organic growth for the PNC carriers. Oh yeah, I mean, it's it's blue ocean where you know it's uh, new stuff for them. Yeah. Um, whereas 
even HMOs today, they don't really want to go self-funded. But when your largest client comes to you and says, hey, I'm going self-funded with or without you. Yeah, then you, you got to have the option. Yeah, you, well, you don't have to. You can become a dinosaur and go extinct. Yeah. But So, um, you know, when you when you speak about some of the reinsurers that exited the space some years back, um, yes, this marketplace has grown significantly, but so have the number of carriers that are in this space. And then I think about kind of like the next big wave of reinsurance claims that are going to come from these gene therapy treatments. So these are one-time treatments that cost a lot of money and it's probably going to cause a lot of pain to the reinsurance marketplace. What do you think is going to happen in the next couple of years because of the gene therapy stuff that's going on? I mean, it, it used to be years ago, you know, what is, what are the costs of stop loss? Well, you've got spec and ag, you've got 90%, 99% spec claims, 1% ag. So all you care about is big claims. And for the most part, those big claims used to be hospital inpatient. So all I cared about, big claims, hospital inpatient claims. And all I really cared about was tertiary care hospitals. Because if you're at a community hospital, they can't they can't do some of the big transplants and exactly heart conditions. they don't do the multi-million dollar they didn't do the multi-million dollar claims yeah they'll do one of three things they'll cure you they'll kill you or they'll ship you to Mabe's tertiary care hospital sure. so all we care about is big claims hospital inpatient or at a tertiary care hospital and then you know um, how the network's contracted it, more of more recently the uh Drugs matter. It's kind of like uh, like the southern border. I mean, it's we've got an opioid problem. We we've got a gene therapy problem. Yeah. Uh, so yes, it's going to be huge. But what is different with this thing is what you just said. Instead of I'm going to spread this over three or four years, and hey, I'm, my employer, I might not have. I'm an insurance company. I might not even have that carrier or that employer next year. And that employer might not have that employee two years from now mm-hmm. because of employee turnover. So what ends up happening is, yeah, I care about it, but it's spread out and I might get hit with one year out of the next five. Right. If it's all going to say, whoops, here's two and a half, here's five million bucks today so that you can have lower claims in the future on people that you probably didn't really care about because they're not even they're not with you the in the future. Right. They're going to be... You know, there's there going to be some arguing going on on who's, who's nickel it is. Fair. Yeah, I, I see that as a, a big problem that's going to face our industry. And it's going to be a really big problem to the smaller carriers who don't have the really big blocks to spread that type of risk over, who are concerned every year about seeking reinsurance and being able to secure reinsurance. And this could create a wave where like some of the smaller carriers get gobbled up or exit the space just because they don't have the capacity. Or somebody comes up with a solution to the problem for the, I mean, again, the big carrier, United doesn't, you know, they'll absorb it and pass it cost on. Mm-hmm. Um, the smaller carriers, you're right, they need protection just like they need reinsurance. A reinsurer will come up with it, or even you came up with the product that, uh, at BCS, that it's a plug here. Um, <laughs> Thank you. You know, it, that can help those carriers to mm-hmm. say, okay, this is a very unpredictable risk. How can we 
take that off the plate and put it over here and solve your problem. For sure. You. Sure. Um, so, so Mike, there's obviously some really giants in the stop loss and self funding industry. When you think about like the Mount Rushmore and you can't put yourself on the Mount Rushmore, who's like on your Mount Rushmore of stop loss and self funded giants? Oh, wow. Uh, well, there, there's different fields. If you were to say an MGU, yeah, you have to be like a Ray Moulton, um, or Joe McElhane. Uh, with MBR and uh, with Moulton, um, his MGU. If it was a reinsurance intermediary, I, you know, even though it was uh, owned a chunk of MR, vast majority of MR, I might say Don Van Dyke. Okay. I learned a lot of, uh, you know, just general business things with him. He was, he was one of the honest ones out there. Okay. So as a reinsurance intermediary, um, you know, I, Another reinsurance intermediary I like was Liz Mariner. She um, is actually the reason we're talking here because she recommended you to me. And I thought, oh, yeah, I've seen Maid give a talk. It's a great idea. So then brought you in uh, to run MRM. Yeah. Now you've got MRM. You've got two hats, MRM and Chief Actuary at BCS. That's right. Um, I kind of like my position of no jobs instead of two (laughs) jobs, but... I'm young. I've got the energy. Exactly. <laughs> um, anybody else on your Mount Rushmore? Okay. Um, let's see. We did intermediaries. We did MGUs. Carriers. Wow. Um, trying to think who would be good. Craig Kevill at HCC. Um, you know, they had a big block. Sure. Um, it's unlike Dan Fishbein now is, uh, you know, they, they've got a big block. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Greg Parker, I'm running out of slots if there's only four on Rushmore, <laughs> not Rushmore, but Greg Parker is an actuary getting in early at uh, Safeco, which became Symmetra. Sure. And I did uh, stop loss seminars with him around the country. Okay. And that was a lot of fun. Good. But, you know, in 86, back before stop loss was cool. Right. Okay. Well, so, you know, the purpose here is really to educate the next generation about the stop loss and self-funding industry. So um, what's like a piece of advice you could share for somebody who is early in their career and thinking about, you know, maybe doing something different? What's a piece of advice you would tell them about this industry and what the prospects could be? This is probably a piece of advice that is good in practically any industry. And that's just make sure you've read more than your competitors. Yeah. And every time you you read a book, you know, just general business insurance book, try to figure out all the ways that can apply to what you're currently working on. And you'll find out you don't have to reinvent the wheel. All of these smart guys, like where I live in Florida, um, there's a guy in the building, John Cotter, who's probably the third highest business consultant, you know, Harvard professor, yeah. written God knows how many books on uh, change. Um, he's great. Um, you know, you know, Michael Porter, Clayton Christensen. Um, just read all the, the great gurus. And then apply what you've read. Okay. Uh, just within stop loss, 
you know, MRM's always been a network centric where we're like, hey, if I can differentiate this network from that network, uh, we're going to know more. As a result, um, our PPO discounts are probably used by half the MGUs out there, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of funny because, you know, the outside view of MRM world, in addition to the normal block, is we're dealing with you know, hundreds of networks sure. funneling the data, you know, crunching it and then sending it out to dozens of carriers, MGUs, and all of that. Yes. So, piece of advice, I guess, uh, read everything in sight. Okay. That's good because we, you've written a lot and I've written a lot. So, there's a lot of good content out there for, uh, exactly. for the youngsters to go out there and read. So, really appreciate you joining us for Firm and Final Mike. Thanks okay. for being our inaugural guest. Oh, thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. It really was a pleasure interviewing Mike McLean for the first edition of Firm and Final. And I hope you walked away with a wealth of knowledge. Mike has probably forgotten more about stop loss than I'll ever know. Um, one of the things that really resonated to me about the conversation with Mike was the growth of the self-insurance and stop loss industry. And he's absolutely right. This industry has been growing for many, many years. And to me, growth means opportunity. I think it's a space that's going to continue to grow. And it's nice hearing from people like Mike, who have the historical perspective on how the industry was many years ago. Thank you for having joined us for this edition of Firm and Final. Join us again next time as we continue to interview the legends of the stop loss, reinsurance, and self-funded industry. Thank you.